Welcome to Advance Your Art. If you are interested in making money from your art, using your artistic background to your advantage when switching careers, or if you are just plain stuck, you've come to the right place. Now let's get started and have some fun with your host, Yuri Cataldo. Hello, welcome to another episode of Advance Your Art with Yuri Cataldo. If you're interested in learning how to build a company, make money from your art, or if you're just feeling stuck about what to do next, you've come to the right place. Every week, I sit down with a creative entrepreneur to discuss the who, what, and why of their journey. If you like this episode, please remember to like, subscribe, and share this with a friend. Today, I'm sitting down with the electric violinist, Asher Lobb. Asher, hello. Welcome. How are you? Pretty good, Yuri. Thanks so much for having me. Of course. It is my absolute pleasure. Likewise. Uh, so again, I gave you a very light in, uh, introduction, but for my listeners who are less familiar with you and what you're doing, how do you describe yourself and what you do? I wear a lot of hats. Um, I'm an electric violinist, first and foremost, a composer, producer, live performer. Um, I run an ent entertainment group, Fiddler's Dream Productions. Uh, I work with a bunch of different entertainment um, acts and all sorts of other companies. Uh, and I love it. I love the, the, just the versatility of just every day is different, uh, meeting many different people. And that's pretty much what I do. That's what I earn my income. Primarily, I'm going to say, and many streams of income, but primarily from live performances. That's where most of my bread and butter is. That's interesting. I hear that's, I mean, is that an industry standard for most musicians, performers? It's, um, it's I'm going to say it's, well, what I do is pretty much evolving. Okay. Uh, I'm going to say an industry standard for violinists that graduate from Juilliard, for instance, Manhattan School of Music, you know, in, in a, a hub where there's demand and there's money to actually pay for ensembles. Uh, String musicians are, if they're not in the Philharmonic, which mm -hmm. there are very few options, uh, they're, they're, they're teaching mm -hmm. to kind of fill in the days. And then they're playing, you know, trios, quartets at like weddings, that kind okay. of thing. I gotcha. Okay. Which I try to do. I do some of, but most of what I do is outside of that is, is, is a bit different. Okay. All right. So I do want to get into that soon, but first I like to take a step back and start from the beginning. And that is, so the violin, what initially got you interested in the violin? Well, if you want to take that literally, the beginning, I was in diapers. So uh, <laughs> a two and change. Yes. And okay. I think it was more like Goo Goo Gaga, even though my mother said, claims that I articulated, articulately stated, Mom, I would like to play the violin just like my older brother, uh, <laughs> who's, we're talking six years older than me. Yeah. <laughs> so I uh, doubt that happened, but I started on a little margarine box, rubber band serving the strings. Mm -hmm. And when I had three, I was playing a little classical Chinese violin about that. I don't know, that small. And then kind of grew. Yeah. The violins grew along with me. What? So a life of their own. Mm -hmm. I, so I've, I've, I've heard of, so I have some other uh, classy musician friends who also, when they're classy they're or classical, classical, <laughs> classical. I, I, I kid, I kid. Cause <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, my, my, my question is about like your, so your mother handing you, let's say a box with the, the rubber bands on there. So 
I've heard of them kind of just doing that for their kids also because they want to be like their parents, but like understanding the mechanics of what it's like to hold something under your chin. Is that, did that, does that help her? Like, can you, is there any kind of benefit that you have now looking back can think about that your parents giving you, let's say a, a test violin at that early age helped or hindered your progression? Well, I'm going to say there are definitely pros and cons to that. Uh, the pros are that I pretty much do this stuff in my sleep. I don't really have to think about it. So I have less anxiety when I'm performing. It's literally like riding a bike, actually better than riding a bike because I did it way earlier than that. Bike came around four or five. Uh, the, the cons are the physical strain to the sustained strain on my back and the alignment of my spine. Mm -hmm. So whoever invented the violin is an idiot. <laughs> but, <laughs> uh, but but I mean, that's, that, that goes with any any instrument, except for DJing where it's like, do you ever hear about a, a DJ complaining? Oh man, just touching these buttons really strains my back. <laughs> the, the physical aspect, no. And if they do, they should probably be slapped because it's not like yeah. it's not a these no turntables. No, yeah, exactly. No offense <laughs> to DJ, it's not really a big physically demanding like lift. Um, you're right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, watch the SNL uh, script on DJs. It's hilarious. Like guy flipping eggs at a, at a massive concert. Fans are screaming. He's flipping eggs behind the, the DJ booth. They, they think he's like mixing and everything. I'm saying this not because I'm a DJ hater, but because I am a DJ. So I can trash talk us DJs. Uh, although there is a lot of skill involved with with DJing. Um, that being said, there are many DJs that are not skilled that need to work on that part. Oh, that's true. I've also, I've also interviewed a number of DJs on this show too. And, and yes, but we're uh, talking about like the physical aspect, like they don't physically yeah, not, carry around their turntable. And although well, if they I did, that's pretty cool. Like pretty, while they're performing, if they could do that. Yeah. Anyway. Um, so, okay. Okay. So, so the, so beneficial on, on that side. So let's talk about then. Um, so past then, so you're, you're, you had a fake violin, then became a real violin. What, what age was like, I don't know, you would call a real violin where you actually got serious about playing the violin uh three okay and what was that yeah, like was, uh it was i actually remember like it was yesterday because oddly enough i've run this memory through my mind uh almost like a habit and i don't mm -hmm. know if it's like unique to me or if it's what human beings do but i never wanted to forget my earliest moments because that was my biggest I guess concern that I, I I couldn't just depend on photos. Like they didn't have cell phones back then. Man, I sound like I'm old. Like now I got a million photos of my of my daughter or my son. Yeah. But uh, I just, uh, the, all these memories that I don't have photos of and and they're deeply meaningful to me. And I, uh, I, I know, I know that at age three, I know the songs I was, I, I don't, I know, I know the, like the Suzuki book one mm -hmm. songs. And I remember standing in front of my teacher, um, and and just like taking instruction from her and and practicing and it, it was a bit you know tense for a young kid my age but 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 it was also meaningful and it was beautiful in, in a sense i have a lot of a lot of great memories yeah do you remember what kind of student you were at that early age i i like to i think of myself as as having been uh what's the word i guess really 
really, really focused on, mm-hmm. on my teacher's intentions, but I don't know if that was actually the reality. I have to ask my mother. Um, I think later on, like years later, I, I got kind of boring for me and mm-hmm. I, I sort of, I sort of moved in the direction of uh, improvisation in high schools. I was looking for something beyond just classical uh, and then sight reading. Yeah. So, okay. All right. So let's, let's talk about then your further progression. Okay. So, so you, did you go to performing arts high school? What was your, what were your, well, so, your so my training, like? yeah. my training by far, uh, I attribute to private lessons, weekly lessons over 20 years. Okay. Uh, in addition to classical, um, you know, weekly classical memberships, uh, Greater Buffalo Youth Orchestra, Greater Buffalo Youth String Orchestra is essentially the orchestra for, for upstate New York. So people from Rochester and Syracuse, people who are driving up there every week mm-hmm. to uh, to attend these these classical rehearsals or playing all these classic war horses, um, Be- you know, Beethoven, Mozart, Bach, all, like everything under the sun you could think of that you've ever heard. <clears throat> and then we would do these large concerts. We're talking maybe, I don't know, 400 people. Wow. Uh, all the parents came. Every uh, and this was at the University of Buffalo. That every, I'm gonna say every every couple of months, and and they were like hour hour long concerts at least. It might have been an hour plus, you know, an hour and change. Mm-hmm. So so that was my pretty much experience from almost to, to almost out of the womb. You know, I, I started doing uh, performances on stage at three, three four maybe mm-hmm. Suzuki string uh, summer whatever. I don't want to bore your listeners too much, but it started very young and 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 it's pretty much intuitive at this yeah. point. It's very natural for me to just get up on stage. I'm not saying I'm not, I, I was meant to be on stage. Just my background has created this, you know, stage-like mentality. Yeah. 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 So it's okay. So you were doing that through, through high school. Do you remember, and this may have been in high school or after the moment when you decided this is what I now want to dedicate the rest of my life doing. Uh, well, oddly enough, uh, I, I didn't come to that conclusion until, well, I, I'm going to say there are three major, two major moments. One okay. was uh, high school. So uh, I was a senior in high school and I was, and I got accepted to, to go to the New York university, get, get a, get a bachelor's. And I thought I'm going to hit the ground running. And this is my opportunity to try to earn a living uh like work my way through school which in retrospect was probably a good idea because here i am doing music full time uh it was not something my parents were excited about because they wanted me to focus on my studies but uh i I, so i sent in some some tapes tapes (laughs) it was back when tapes were like a real thing um yeah sent a snail mail to different orchestras in new york (laughs) i looked them up and and uh it's funny that I took the initiative at that time because it really it 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 took me pretty far. Mm-hmm. And they they you know granted I wasn't earning a lot. I, I started playing a couple of gigs. I sat in on a couple of gigs, but it was only a few. And then I started getting paid for for you know playing played at uh, played at Chelsea Piers and just different parts of of the city and uh, kind of evolved from there. And gradually my income increased. And I started doing concerts within I'm going to say about four years at that that mm-hmm. time. So so that was the first step. And I'm going to say the only time that I stopped playing music between then, like 2001 and now, uh, was when I physically lost the ability. I mean, even when I was, I, and I went through three three other degrees. So when I was at NYU and I was getting my master's and other degrees, 
I I was still doing gigs. I was fewer because I was really like tied up with with the academics, but I was still because it was just making me money. But yeah. when I physically lost the ability, that was when I uh, I'm going to say it was, it was at least a year. Um, I got to check back on my notes because a bit of a blur, to be honest, but mm-hmm. it was about a year. And then when I regained the ability, I hit the ground running and I never looked back mm-hmm. um, up until now. And okay. that was about six, seven, seven, eight years ago. Okay. So that was the main impetus. That was the decision, deciding factor that, you know what, I'm taking a risk here. It's maybe a little nuts, but I, I, I realized how short life really is and how fragile we really are. And I didn't realize up until up until then. And, and I realized that it was worth taking the risk because I don't want to feel, I don't want to have regrets at the end of my life that I didn't choose a path that gave me true, deep, a deep sense of joy that I could then impart and have an impact on other people mm-hmm. as a result. So, yeah. Um, okay. So, and I do want to talk about that in a second, but I want to backtrack since you mentioned this. Um, you have multiple degrees. Can you walk me through your educational journey and what what you ended up studying and, and why you chose to keep going so, to school? So I, I, I have, I've taken a number of courses in music theory uh, at the college level okay. uh, and musical performances at the college level. However, I never went to, I never applied to a dedicated um uh, what is it called? Like music, music program. I mean, yeah, I, conservatory. I was okay. yeah. conservatory. I, I mean, I was just going to say, like, if I were to apply anywhere, it would have been Juilliard or Manhattan, Manhattan School of Music, along with literally all my peers I grew up with yeah. in upstate. They all went there and we all went through the Suzuki together. And it's funny. Um, pretty, pretty intense up there. Um, but I, I specifically chose the path of like a mainstream degree, mm-hmm. oddly enough, because I was discouraged from using all that, all that experience, all that education in music and actually making a career. Cause I, my family didn't see that as a good option, uh, as a safe option. Uh, mm-hmm. but once I, once it just, everything just started falling to my lap, it was sort of a no brainer. Yeah. Now they finally accepted it years later, but, uh, that's, that's kind of just, it was, I felt like it was the most prudent, responsible thing to do. Uh, if I knew what I know now, I would have just gone to conservatory, but I don't know, like, I don't regret the degrees that I have mm-hmm. um, a lot of education in the sciences, which is why I'm blathering my mouth off about like biology and science. And oddly enough, I've had my own medical issues as I mentioned. So, so that's, uh, yeah. The, well, the, so yeah, I was like, I say along with that, and, and you, you mentioned that your, your parents say wanted you to have a, let's say the, know, the, the safer, more secure option was your, while you were, going to school was the ultimate goal then to be where you did you want to be a professor or a like a, a music teacher I guess I'm I'm could you like connect the dots of the vocation that your parents wanted you to do that you were then going to school for at that time they wanted to meet me to be in the sciences they wanted me to have like a nine to five stable quote-unquote okay. stable I don't think I think stable these <laughs> days but uh at right. the time back when things were a little more normal inflation wasn't through the roof and pandemics were like a non-existent like that that's what they were that's what they were wanting for me okay and uh you know just the stats just w- weren't very good 
uh, for, I think I heard from my aunt that like 1% of all graduates from Juilliard actually become performers. It's like, wow. You know, I, if, if I'm going to get, if I'm going to go to conservatory, I'm not going to go to conservatory so I can teach. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have people asking me to teach all the time. Um, I, I, you know, I, I learned from, uh, a student of Ivan Galamian, who's renowned in, in, in Juilliard, uh, Thomas Halp in upstate. Mm-hmm. He's, he's the teacher up in upstate. I, I spent like at least a decade, if not more, uh, there's tutelage. Uh, I mean, learning, learning all of his, pretty much what he learned from Ivan Galamian. And, uh, you know, the, I'm grateful for those skills because I use them in performance as opposed to, um, teaching. I don't do so much teaching yeah. at all. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. So let's talk about then your life post university. And so you graduate with a few different degrees, but still the violin is, is the calling. What did you do? Bills, yeah. yeah. So what, so you graduate, what do you do then? So like I said, like I mentioned, I, I had bills to pay. So it was like, yeah. okay, I can like take the NCLEX or I can just like take all these gigs that are flying my way. And it was like, a I got a mortgage to pay. So I just started working and, and I was pretty much earning more. And so Uh, That being said, you know, music is not the most stable career, Uh, but but when things are going really well and and over a long period of time, it's like, you know, you just want to keep keep testing and and trying things out and seeing what's working. And uh, uh, so to answer your question directly, I I just I just as a freelancer, I just took work that kept coming my way. Mm -hmm. Um, And and I I tried to and I, I started to push more original compositions and more of like the production end of of music as opposed to uh like being a sideman on a bandstand where you sort of brought in a studio musician just do what we say so try to become more independent from what mm-hmm. i've done prior yeah so meaningful. what i love about this is that your answer is the opposite of what i hear from other classically yeah. trained musicians where it's like the the reverse where they had to take the traditional nine to five something to pay for their art and yours was the opposite of like you get the degree but then you're like no the, the creative side yeah. is and the violin is paying me more than what my other degree was so let's keep going with that yeah, yeah. it's really odd um and my my family didn't really expect it and that being said i'm not i, I don't want people to think that like oh i, I i'm if they're a skilled musician that they, it could they could just do it because i want to tell you right off the bat this has been a very challenging journey uh yeah. but it's been so meaningful that like weighing the pros and cons it's like the pros have outweighed the cons um so i didn't want me to cut you off there i just no no that's that's great so my question with these with this next phase of your journey is you mentioned before you were just saying yes to a lot of gigs but is there was there a lot of like rhyme or reason while you were saying yes to freelance gigs or was like anything came your way i said yes to like what was your philosophy behind that so I, I, that's a good question because at the time, we say a number of years ago, I would just take anything that came my way. Yeah. Now it's, I find that it's a bit of a trade-off because once you, you kind of get hitched to certain, certain, I'm going to say uh, promoters or uh, booking agents, mm-hmm. like once you start taking a few gigs from them, they end up pitching you more and you end up kind of being hitched to them. So just a word of advice, you kind of want to be happy with the promoter or the booking agent. You want to be happy with the arrangement, the financial arrangement. You don't want to, like, I, I used to go, uh, I don't know, 
know, upstate or downstate, whatever, for, for payment that was a, like a little more than local. And I realized after a number of years, like I was, this is unsustainable. It's like I, my income is not rising. Yeah. It commensurate like with my experience and the skills that I'm developing. So I honestly, I went through a troublesome time where I literally dropped them and I had to kind of re refresh. And now I'm starting to work a little more with people that are more, more sensitive to what I'm, I'm asking for, mm-hmm. which is transparency, like deposits, that kind of stuff. Like you have to protect yourself as an independent musician. Yeah. And you definitely have to protect yourself as a signed musician too, by the way. <laughs> so uh, I, I want to dig into that a little bit more. Was there, so do you have a, a, a traditional agent or representation that helps you now find, you know, gigs? Um, uh-huh. And what was it like to get that group or individual? So in the beginning, it started, like I mentioned, uh, senior in high school, mm-hmm. I reached out to the, the agents and then I kind of like, it grew a little bit old for me. And then I kind of felt like I graduated from that, that point um, because I was pretty much demanding more money and fewer hours and, you know, like certain types of performances that were not as rewarding to me, um, not being as much of an appendage to other people's performances. Um, mm-hmm. So in that sense, <clears throat> I... I kind of I kind of shifted to 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 booking agents that 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 I I have um I'm gonna say I haven't gone out of my way to to like contact them. Hey, I'm available. I, I rarely do that, but I've been more available for them than certain other agents, if yeah. if you know what I mean. So that's sort of I'm gonna say it happened organically. So I tend to see repetition. I tend to see more of the same people over time as I enjoy working with them and for them. Mm-hmm. And then I, 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 I've built more of my, more or less my own clientele through Fiddler's Dream Productions, which I, I feel like I have more control of my career and I understand the business end of things as a musician, which I really think is critical. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I was just flying blind for the first, I'm going to say 10 years in the industry. And you can't, if, if you, if you really like, if you don't want to be 60, 70 and you want to actually have a retirement, not just depend on a union that may or may not assist you. I, I just think that, that you really need to take control of your own finances. Yeah. So when you realized that, what, what were the first things you did when you decided that you wanted to take control of your finances and the business side of your work? So I had to do a lot of data collection, a lot, okay. like mind numbing amounts of data collection. I, and it started with an Excel sheet. Cause it's like, you could pay for a, a, a subscription or a, a su- subscription service and then like throw thousand dollars down the, down the toilet and not end up coming up with data. But I've literally been collecting data over the last six years, um, averaging about 150 to 220 events per year. So I'm literally collecting data on location, uh, date, income, the name of the booking agent or client, the the hours, like everything you could possibly make, like the distance. And it's, again, it's mind numbing, but it's data that I, that I, I it's so useful to me because I could literally see trends and charts. I, I can make charts out of this stuff mm-hmm. and I could see, okay. And then I have to juxtapose the income with, on one chart with, with expenditures. So I can see my ROI. And that's essentially what a company does. I had to start thinking of myself as a company, which was stressful because I didn't see anybody else doing that. I saw a lot of, you know, busy freelancers just sort of satisfied with the status quo. I just wasn't. I, I, I've never been satisfied just 
being a musician on a bandstand. So mm-hmm. it's either getting signed to a label, uh, which many people are unhappy are dissatisfied with, or or and there are far fewer people doing this, or just working everything from the ground up and and hiring staff around you to create your brand, which is essentially a small business could turn into a, a large company. Mm-hmm. With all of the the data points you're collecting, is there something particularly you're optimizing for, or is it just mm. comparison of, of and I, things? And I'm talking to a professor here, so I got to be careful what I say. Uh, <laughs> Ex professor, I do that anymore, but I do work well, in tech now. <laughs> right, but but you know data, obviously. Yeah. So what what am I controlling for? So unfortunately, because there are so many variables, it's very difficult to control. But but. But that does not negate the the incredible value of of uh, collecting as much data as possible, as many columns and uh, and rows as possible of of, of data. And uh, an example where where you know I, you can't. I'm okay. I'll, I'll just give an example. Uh, I, I might use a certain strategy which which involves ads. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, that's, I'm sure lots of people do that and they just literally spend their life savings down the toilet as uh, Mark Zuckerberg just, you know, collects, collects your cash because right. that's essentially what he's doing with ads. And let me tell you, uh, he's going to, uh, he, the algorithm is going to hate me. Um, I, if only I can get his attention, mm-hmm. uh, I, I find that I, I, I found that the, more often than not, ads were pretty much a negative return. Okay. Uh, and I found that over like six, seven months. But that, is, that doesn't mean that it's a negative return for all people. It just means for for me it was. And yeah. possibly because there's some sort of correlation. It, it doesn't matter. I don't want to, we have limited time. So uh, <laughs> that would just be one example where I just focused on the ads and I didn't, I didn't do anything else. Like I didn't deal with uh, too much content, too, too much backlinks. Like everything was ad focused and mm-hmm. I was creating custom audiences and 70, I was retargeting 75% video viewers. And I don't know if you want me to bore you with the details, but, but I, I took a course on the whole thing and, and it was, it was elaborate. And it even got to the point where I was dealing with, with ad services, like at the Facebook and Instagram level, for instance, mm-hmm. uh, directly, like they were actually reaching out to me because I was spending so many thousands of dollars on, on ad spend, uh, unfortunately. So yeah, I hope I'm helping. I hope I'm addressing your question. You wanted to know, like, how do I isolate the variables? That was yes. just one example. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. So no, that, that's, that's great. It's, um, I was just kind of curious again, there, there was no, I had no real, like one way or the other with that. I was just curious as uh, how you were using the data you were collecting. Essentially, I was looking at month to month income and then okay. I was looking at annual and I was collecting data on like month to month, six months at a time, like January to to May, Jennifer, April, May, June, June to six months later. And I was doing three, three month increments and I was looking at all these charts and I was trying to find trends. Where did I, where was I in the negative zone? And I found that more I found that like 100 percent of the time, not even like 90 percent of the time, whenever I, I focused on ads, mm-hmm. uh, I, I, I lost thousands like mm-hmm. my, my income. My, I could have earned, I don't know, let's just say 10 grand in a month, but my end spin would have been 15. And it was like, you know, unless I had done that data collection, that mind numbing hours and hours of data, I wouldn't have come to that conclusion, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah. no, so no that's, that's, I that's important. I mean, and it's not just you. It, 
even businesses do that same thing where they don't realize what they're actually spending their money on because they don't look at the actual data. It's, it's more of like, what, what do we feel like? And so I think that's phenomenal that you realize that I'm spending money on this because I'm looking at where everything is going and it's not worth the time and the energy and the effort. And I can spend my time doing something else. I'll tell you why. Well, so now I just want to tell you, yeah. this came on the heels of, of tremendous success. So I would have just quit my job. I would have just like gone into a different hmm. career yeah. had I not had achieved previous success with other strategies that I didn't feel were, were reliable or provided a sustained income, which is really what I'm looking for. Yeah. And could you, yeah, go ahead. I don't mean to interrupt you on that one, but could you tell me more about, so what sustained, what, what were you doing beforehand that suddenly had this tremendous success that you felt was not sustainable? If you don't mind talking about that. Uh, it was a lot of different things. Uh, okay. So I, I, I was, first of all, I, I'm even trying to figure it out because I was doing <laughs> stone. I was literally, it was, it's not, it's it's not something I would recommend, which is why okay. I stopped it, which is yeah. why I went into ads because I was looking for sustained income. Um, and I've changed things since then. But if you want to, if you want a failed uh, model, uh, here you go. So I was trying different strategies every month, which the algorithm sort of, the algorithm, the internet, whatever the world rewards. So whenever you're like kind of new on the scene or new in a certain platform, yeah, it's always, but, but it was exhausting. It was like, yeah. oh, so yeah, it worked, but it was unsustainable. And if I hired out third parties to do this kind of stuff, it, you can't trust them uh, nine oh, yeah. times out of 10. And I have worked with so many third party and I, I took it into my own, own hands. Mm -hmm. Frankly, I don't even know if major, major, I don't even know if labels know what they're doing uh, in some cases because you see artists come and go. Right. So artists that come, they may have used those short-term strategies and then they go because it's like, well, it's not the label's problem. They they earned their money. They got a 360 deal. It was, they were, they literally used the artist as a test dummy, uh, which was zero risk to them, mm -hmm. which is if I got signed to a label, which probably could have happened pretty quickly considering my success, um, I, 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 I might have been one of those dummies and then I, I would have had to quit my career, which I believe okay. a lot of artists at this point are doing. Yeah. So sustainability. So I, I like that. That's your focus. Are there particular platforms today? And so I know a lot of, like, everyone's talking about what's happening with TikTok or Snapchat and there's YouTube. That's all, again, every single few months, there's another platform that can potentially draw audiences to you. In your experience, is there... I don't know, one or two that you prefer to use because you have been able to sustain an audience through those those third-party platforms? So uh, just by default, just because of the popularity of the program, of the, the platforms, I use about, I'm going to say 10 platforms. Okay. So Instagram, Facebook, uh, just because like I've invested so much on those platforms at this point, like so many people know me, it's just been the easiest to, uh, and there are all these brand deals and stuff like that. A lot of clients find me there so i tend to, to invest there youtube i've been just spent so much time on that um mm -hmm. i've got that going spotify all my music is there deezer itunes uh my music is distributed to like 70 different platforms so they're my digital distributors so i'm doing that Apix recruited me to um they basically like pay me to to do uh to, to post to mm -hmm. post like original content. So it's like, why not? Okay, fine. I, I'm already creating the original content on Facebook. So I just post there. Yeah. Uh, Twitter, I, just to stay relevant. So TikTok, okay. I guess, I don't, the thing is TikTok, I don't know if they're just like playing there. I, I see them as sort of like the fast food restaurant. 
of of social media because it's literally like ADHD city in terms of I don't mean that in the pejorative, just the, the such short attention span mm-hmm. uh, because everybody is out competing everybody else. And I don't know how many I don't know how many fans actually have I don't know how many influencers are actually real influencers because those numbers aren't necessarily real. Same with Spotify. Like I don't know how many of those numbers are real. Like how many of them are bots? How many of them are engaged real authentic followers? How many of them are from like Afghanistan, which is fine if you you want to do concerts there. And how many of them are from the US? Right. All right. So it... <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's the best answer I've ever heard on that one. Um so, I mean, with that, do you prefer, let's say, Facebook because of the fact that you can directly speak to your audience in, let's say, the United States where you do majority of your concerts? It's a kind of a leading question, but. Um, or not. I prefer Facebook because I've invested so much. Okay. Not necessarily <laughs> because they're any nicer to me uh, than, than like, I don't know, TikTok or Twitter. Uh, same with Instagram. Like I find social media to be stressful, to be honest. It's stressful mm-hmm. because uh, it, it's it, the more you invest, the more you have to invest. Right. Like you can't just invest and leave. Like you get punished, honestly. So guys out there, folks who are like looking to, oh, like who think like, oh, like I'm just going to hop on Facebook and, and produce content and it's going to be great. Uh, it ain't so simple. Yeah. You know, you got to you got you got to stick to what whatever strategy you're using. Uh, because if you drop it, you get you get your butt kicked. Yeah. So let's so let's pivot for a second because um, you were talking about being adaptable. So 2014, and you mentioned this before about a time when you could not physically play. Can you tell me more about what happened and what that was like? Uh, long story short, I, I had I had pre, a medical precondition, which is inflammatory disease. So uh, which which I, I didn't I didn't really have much information leading up to a state of adrenal insufficiency, which was which was the big moment. Uh, so you're you're asking like what is it that led to that or or what is it that um, or, or just just elaborate or describe what happened? Yeah, just kind of like what what happened and again because you you mentioned before that also was a very pivotal point in your career too. So what was what was that like? And then obviously you could come out of it. What was it like coming out of, of your condition for that year? Yeah, so I, I landed, I, I ended up in, in a wheelchair. I actually ended up a, pretty much a vegetable using a bedpan. Like I, I was, I would, could not take care of myself. It was depressing to say the least. And it was, uh, it was scary and I didn't understand it. I didn't understand how it could be. I, I was immortal before that, mm-hmm. literally immortal. Uh, I didn't see anything happening to me, but uh I was lucky enough to have my father uh, who kind of stepped in to, to help me out. And, and it, it, he, he helped assist me in what I needed to do in order to get better, which were a whole series of steps, which I, I, I don't, I don't think I should elaborate on because sure. I, I'm not advocating certain modalities of medicine. Uh, I, I don't want to be controversial. And actually a lot of my clients are, are mainstream med- med- medical systems and so on and so forth, but sure. Uh, not in a nutshell, it took a lot of perseverance and a lot of intuition and a lot of reading and self and a lot of knowledge, uh, mm-hmm. reading textbooks and stuff like that to, to get out of that mess. And it, it's still a work in progress, although I've been very productive 
over the last uh, seven years, seven or eight years. So yeah, getting out of that state months later, uh, regaining my strength was very gradual. Although considering where I was at on a permanent dosage of, of Cortap, maybe it wasn't so gradual. I mean, these, these uh, people, people are, people don't get better from these conditions. They don't, sure. it, it's like, I don't know anybody other than myself who's gotten better to be honest. Maybe mm-hmm. they are, but, uh, send me a DM, DM if you're listening and you're one of those people, but I, I uh, once I got better, I, I just pretty much, when I say I hit the ground running, I literally, like I got myself to the point where I, I had never been that strong, that healthy. And I, and, and I feel very fortunate. I felt obligated to share my success with, with the world, which is mm-hmm. why I, it's not, a, it's not a secret for me. And, and I feel like if there's anything that came out of that, and I lost so much money and so much time and it was so much heartache and so many blood, sweat, and so much, so, so many tears were shed over those moments. It's like, yeah. what am I going to make out of that? Am I just going to sort of uh, just share? I, I, I feel completely obligated to share that story with, with the world. And, and hopefully I can inspire other folks who might be in a sim- similar disposition or, 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 or a moment of, of shock that maybe they feel like they can't get out of that. Maybe there is an opportunity for them to do so and to maybe not listen to the status quo, which is what I ignored that got me to where I am now. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about that, you know, post post this time. So you you emerged healthier and with a changed, you know, focus on your your music. So what what did how did that manifest itself? Uh, well, I sort of reinvented myself as, a, as a, an electric dancing violinist with uh, choreography with, with dancers, with uh, some awesome uh, break dancers. And it's not something that I do regularly. It's, it's what I re- sort of reserve for large scale concerts. Mm-hmm. But it, it's something I, I really have a hell of a lot of, I, I, I really enjoy. I have a good time uh, doing it. And it's, I feel like it's the ultimate high energy expression of, of, you know the, the kind of music that I've that I've been producing up until now, with, with some exceptions, songs like Neon Dreams, Dreaming Awake, a lot of like EDM type, like electronic, classical type music that kind of mm-hmm. gives the music a beat, gives the violin front and center solo spotlight. Yeah. So, um, so okay, you said a lot of things: break dancing, electric violin. I, I I love all of this, and I'm trying to picture this spectacle. I know there you've got some videos on YouTube, but what? Where did this idea emerge to put together so many different types of genres into like one live experience? Where where was that born? Where was that born? I mean, I have obviously seen other uh, very successful crossover violinists that I, I immediately realized I had the I had the skills and the experience in the background doing gymnastics, and then my a lifetime of of intensive musical training on specifically on the violin and on other instruments, but mo- most notably the violin. Yeah. So I, if you want me to drop some names like, uh, you know, Vanessa May, uh, probably not Itzhak Perlman being as he's in a wheelchair, but, uh, yeah. but, but it's a brilliant musician nonetheless. Uh, David Garrett, a uh, crossover violinist in Europe, Lindsey Sterling. Uh, n- none of them quite uh, like brought it, brought it to the level of like gymnastics, like, like flips, which is, probably one of the craziest things I did in one of my earlier music videos. I mm-hmm. uh, found it would be found it to be a bit risky on stage because you don't ever know if you're going to slip on something and you know, you can't just like break your arm at risk. Yeah. Right. 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 Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. I, I, I love that. So where does your, so with this, and I know you've got some, um, 
some singles that are coming out, but yeah. what fuels your creativity now? And, and where do you see your music and expression going into in, into the future? I'm going to say the fans are what fuel my create my creativity and my inspiration because without the fans, I'm pretty much playing in my own room for myself. <laughs> and I, it, it's honestly, a lot, a lot of the fans are not necessarily in line with what my intuition tells me I should mm -hmm. be producing. So I really have to listen to the fans uh, as much as I can. And then I try to kind of shove my own music in there and be like, hey, well, what about this, guys? <laughs> so <laughs> in the case of like Neon Dreams, that was I think that was more or less my music, mm -hmm. um, but which it seems to be universally accepted. That was one more successful. Atlantis is uh, something that lends itself to a lot of the classical fans out there, uh, but also blends in the electronic realm of music and kind of is sophisticated enough that it it gets it gets a lot of the, the older folk the older that might be rude but <laughs> people that are maybe like 50 and 50 and up uh, yeah. finding uh, some use in the in the music so that's what Atlantis is all about and it tells a story it's it's a uh, it starts out kind of I would say depressing but but a, a bit um Foreboding, I don't know, a bit, 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 uh, bit sad in the beginning, mm -hmm. and then it's cyclical in nature. It kind of goes up to this, this climax, this hopeful climax, and cyclical, and then it goes back into this ominous, lower kind of state of, of sad kind of music, and it's largely reflective of the cyclical nature of life. and And my message to my fans, my listeners, is is essentially the importance of staying grounded despite mm -hmm. the highs and lows. You mentioned that you, so again, you, you take a lot of, of inspiration and you listen to your fans. How, how do they communicate with you? Yeah. So uh, through DMs, I get, I get a lot of emails and, uh, and DMs and PMs and uh, posts uh, comments, especially when I go live, mm -hmm. uh, especially recently. So I, I love that stuff. It's just, it's a, uh, it's a beautiful thing connecting with people across the country and parts of Europe and, and Middle East. It's just really, really meaningful. Yeah. So throughout your, your career, you've had, again, a lot of ups and downs and you've, you've pushed yourself and tried new things. I want to hear your thoughts about fear and, and the idea of fear and how you approach times when you feel fearful or, or apprehensive and how do you approach those times and essentially move past the fear of what you're, you're doing? So I, I, like everybody else, uh, experience fear you know, regularly when it comes to, you know, a loved one who's getting sick. Um, in, the case, in that case, it actually, it's, it's, it's a recent reality in my life. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and there's a fear there. there. There's fear and there's sadness and sorrow and um, this fear with, you know, not necessarily knowing where, you know, where my career is going to lead. Um, but there's also at the same time, ju juxtapose that with the excitement of not knowing, you know, so, uh, but, but how do I navigate that? Um, I'm going to say that that my I'm going to call it a milestone. Nah, I probably shouldn't call it a milestone for lack of just, I just can't think of a better better mm -hmm. term. But that that moment uh, where where I'm like looking up at the ceiling, lying on my bed, unable to do anything for myself, even eat. Um, all I have to pretty much do is look back at that moment. And, and that, that moment inspires me that if I could, if and I was scared at the time, but yet it, 
having had that experience gives me fuel, gives me energy, gives me strength to fight my fears. In many cases, it could be irrational. Mm-hmm. So, so that's where I get my strength. Okay. That, and I come to the realization that that I have a lot more. I have a lot more strength within me than appears. You know, first first glance. So with everything that you have done and experienced, what would you say that has been the best advice that you ever received? So received a lot of good advice, but but I actually wanted to elaborate on what I was saying before, before sure. I before I answer that, which does pertain to this. Like Winston Churchill's favorite famous quote, we have nothing to fear but fear itself. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's it's been repeated so many times, it's like a cliche at this point, but it's 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 an inspiring quote you know we have nothing to fear but fear itself like unpack what it is that you're fearful of and and maybe you'll be able to get over that that hump or that 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 obstacle and you'll be able to achieve what it is that you need that that you want that you dream to achieve and uh i guess that's sort of a bit of advice that he did not give me directly through, <laughs> through a couple generations, but I found that to be inspiring. Um, and uh, my, my wife, my own wife, uh, my wife, I, she, she's, she's inspired me to, to continue on this path, even though she knows that it's been a bit of a risk. Mm-hmm. So I don't know, hopefully that, that serves some, some degree of usefulness to your listeners. Yes, of course it does. In your own I guess experience with with fear because you kind of mentioned yeah. that again. Is there? I guess are there ways that you set yourself up or approach the issue, the situation that helps you realize that it's just like you know, it's maybe it's the unknown that you're really scared of, and it's not what's actually happening. How do you like? Are there different categories? How do how do you do that? Especially as someone like yourself who likes you know data. What is there a data approach you take to this? I'm yeah, just kind of yeah, curious. Well- yeah. yeah, so I, I've had a lot of fear about my career, and the data approach has, has helped me uh, kind of tease out all the variables and un- unpack the details and see that okay, I'm I'm seeing success during these months, and mm-hmm. and if if I if I look at things that with from a dispassionate sort of perspective, t- put the emotions aside, uh, I'm able to 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 get around fear. Um. So yeah, I, I think you kind of yeah. knew what I was going to say there. <laughs> I mean, I had an idea, but I, it's better when you say it versus when I yeah. say it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but Asher, this has been an absolute pleasure to uh, to chat yeah. with you today. I really I appreciate much. your time. Uh, if the listeners would like to, again, uh, reach out to you, buy your music, listen uh, to what you're coming out next, where are the best places they can go to do all of that and support sure, you? Sure. I, I, would, I would love to say hello to any of you guys out there, wherever you are. Um, so so asherlaub.com, A-S-H-E-R-L-A-U-B.com is it's got a bunch of links out to my social media pages and my music. You can purchase my music on that website or you can go out to stream it on Spotify, iTunes, Deezer, all the major platforms, Amazon. If you want to see a bunch of Asher shenanigans, I post some like comedic music, uh, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, I go live. I have a patrons group. Those of you who want to support me uh, within Facebook, just Google my name, Asher Lob, and you'll find me anywhere. Yeah. YouTube also. <laughs> That's awesome. So That's I will put- mouthful. Yeah, that was, it's a lot, but I'll put, uh, I'll put the links as many as I can in the show notes so people can click right through and, and support you. Uh, but again, thank you so much. This was absolutely amazing.
Oh, thanks for having me, Yuri. Really a pleasure. Thank you for listening to another episode of Advance Your Art with Yuri Cataldo. If you like this episode, please remember to give us a five-star rating, like, and share with a friend. Our theme music is written and mixed by Chicago-based composer Ryan Black of Black Bones Collaborative. To listen to the full catalog of our episodes, go to advanceyourart.com. To see what I'm working on or book a time with me or buy a copy of my book, Be Left Behind, go to yuricataldo.com. Thank you so much and have a great day.